So hello everyone, uh, welcome to the first Waterstones podcast of 2022. I'm Will Rycroft and I'm changing things up once again. Uh, this year we're going to have episodes which are based on various themes and genres and we're going to bring together authors who can hopefully tell us more about how they do what they do and why readers seem to love that so much. We are beginning with cosy crime, which is a genre which has been popular for over 100 years now, but seems to have been gaining popularity recently. And I'm hoping that we might find out some of the reasons why today. Joining me are Janice Hallett, screenwriter, playwright and author, uh, whose novel The Appeal smashed sales records all over the place uh, as Waterstones threw over the month in July of 2021, um, and whose most recent novel is The Twyford Code. Uh, Nita Prose has spent years serving other authors as editorial director of Simon & Schuster in Canada, but finally stepped into the spotlight herself this year with The Maid, which has already been optioned for a film adaptation with Florence Pugh slated to star as the titular hotel staff. We'll hopefully find out more about that later. Um, And finally, the Reverend Richard Coles, whose dulcet tones uh, have guided me through many a Saturday morning. Um, And he will be inviting all of you to the village of Champton this June as he publishes Murder Before Evensong, which is the first of his Canon Clement mysteries. Uh, Welcome to all of you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having us. (laughs) Thank you, Will. So, cosy crime a phrase that many people have used. I wonder, first of all, how you feel about it as a phrase, uh, whether it sits well with you and how you feel about maybe being put into that genre. Uh, Janice, I, I shall start with you. Yeah, I I, I don't mind being considered cosy crime because I don't have anything at all against that genre. But it was news to me that what I was writing could be described as cosy because <laughs> I, whenever I've been writing, well, The Appeal and Twyford Code, I've never felt divorced from the, um, you know, the devastating consequences of the the terrible crimes I'm writing about, the murder and the death and and the mayhem. Um, so it, you know, it was news to me to be described as cosy crime. But the way I, I feel that it that is is, you know, like a, a police detective when they're investigating a murder, they put their feelings aside to investigate it. And I feel that I kind of do that a bit. I dial down the the visceral horror and dial up the intrigue and suspense and I, I feel that's kind of what what I do but I'm never I'm never far away from the actual reality while I'm writing mm. having said that if if readers want to um you know appreciate the, the funny aspects of the book and and the the coziness of it um that's fine with me Anita, you've worked for many years as as an editor of other authors' works, and I wonder what you sort of feel, what what do you think are the important ingredients for what we might term a sort of cosy crime novel? Sure. Well, I think characters are really important at that sense of, um, you know, a combo cast, an ensemble cast that works together. Um, and that the reader really gets intrigued by the various aspects and facets of their personalities. Um, but I have to say the cozy word is, is uh, you know, utterly confusing to me in some ways too. Uh, because, you know, when I look at the maid, um, you know, there's potential human trafficking, uh, drug abuse, uh, spousal abuse, and many other uh things that I cannot say without, um, you know, sort of giving away (laughs) certain aspects. But, you know, all of those things are cozy. Um, And yet I think that, you know, in in that world, at least in the world of the maid, what I was trying to do was really push on 
uh, the, the journey of the heart and see if it was possible to use some of those aspects of the whodunit and, and put them close to uplit fiction, which really is that journey of the spirit, uh, a hopeful um, portrait of a world. Richard, what does cosy crime mean to you? Look, I'm a vicar on Radio 4 with two long-haired Dachshunds. I live, eat and breathe cosy. So uh, <laughs> I'm hardly surprised to find that label hung around my neck. Um, but, of course, what I write about is not really very cosy at all. Um, I'm unsparing in detailing um, murder, which uh, I think rather offends against a fundamental rule of cosy crime. So uh, cross there. Um but, but cosy works, actually, because I'm interested in disruption, I think. And I'm interested in how the surface of things um, sometimes betrays, but often does not betray, dark currents beneath, which is a familiar situation for any parish priest. Um, so I, I, I wear my coziness with pride, but I reserve the right to disrupt it as frequently and as violently as possible. <laughs> Um, almost all authors I speak to obviously are voracious readers, but I think particularly writers who are dealing with crime are often huge fans of crime writing as a genre. Um, and I wondered whether you might share maybe some of the influences that have fed into your sort of love of this genre. Janice, I'll, I'll come to you first. Oh, well, definitely Agatha Christie. Um, but I would say that what I read most of is true crime, uh, reality and um, reporting on crime uh, is where I would get most of my kind of inspiration from, I think, when looking for ideas and looking for characters and situations and backstories. I would tend to go there. I mean, I love reading crime novels, but I think the reality is that's where I like to look. <laughs> and, uh, Nita, how about you? Well, I would say I'm a voracious omnivore. And of course, um, you know, crime and thriller is, uh, you know, a genre that I absolutely love and that I edit in quite frequently. You know, Lisa Jewell and Ruth Ware and Louise Canlish, uh, Ashley O'Drain. These are some of my favorite authors, some of them I'm lucky enough to work with. Um, but, you know, beyond that, for me, uh, it, it's the cross genre books that, that I find the most fascinating. Uh, and I think, uh, like you said, Richard, uh, that notion of disruption, of having a pattern and seeing what you can break out. And as you said, Janice, of course, the master of the mystery, Agatha Christie, is, is definitely on my mental mood board as a writer, alongside, you know, the film Knives Out and the board game Clue. And if you put that all together, um, you know, a picture of me kind of comes up. <laughs> Richard, uh, which uh, authors have sort of satisfied your yearning for crime? Um, well, I'm a great admirer of the golden age and the queens of crime. So Agatha Christie, uh, Nio Marsh, Marjorie Allingham, Dorothy L. Sayers, World Reels with Surprise, are writers that I admire very much. I'd also like the kind of um, gruffer, ridiculous um, machismo. I love... I mean, I absolutely love Jack Reacher, although I have a theory that he's really gay, but that's for another podcast, never mind that one. Um, and, and I enjoy reading that stuff. I like, I, like, I like books that are full of powerful machinery, literature that kind of does its job cleanly and, and powerfully, and I enjoy that. Um, my richest source, though, is actually people who talk to vicars. It's people who talk to vicars, mostly on public transport. 
Interesting. You've mentioned there the machinery, Richard, and one of the theories about why cosy crime has had such a resurgence recently is that in what have been, let's be honest, fairly uncertain and unsettling times, there is something incredibly satisfying about picking up a book and knowing that it will have a beginning and a middle and an end, that you will have clues and that the mystery will be resolved at the end and then everybody will get on with their lives. Do you think that there's that holds much water and that might be one of the reasons why people love reading it so much? I know it's why I like it. I think I, I like... I like an orderly world that is then profoundly disrupted and then order is regained, usually through the agency of a charismatic weirdo. That's good for me. <laughs> I'm a huge admirer, Janice, particularly of your book. I think the way you stitch together um, the narrative and the necessary means to solve the mystery using all that material I thought was just dazzling and bravo. I thought it was great. Um, Thank you very and, much. Oh, and, and also... Uh, Nita, everyone gets a compliment. But um, Nita, I just also think how clever to have a maid because it's often someone who stays in hotels a lot. And I talk, I'm a bit of an Alan Partridge. So every Friday night I stay in a mid-priced hotel in central London, the point where I've got to know everybody there. I baptise their kids, for goodness sake. But what an insight into the reality of human nature and society. Chambermaids. Yes, they see far too much, do they not? A little bit like Vickers. Yeah. Well, I think, well, we, we see people trying to be good. I think chambermaids mm. see people not trying to be good. Yes, and hiding it behind yeah. closed doors, yes. Yeah. That's, uh, that's very interesting. Let's, let's talk about, because each of these books have a very different setup uh, in which they achieve what they achieve. So, so, Nita, we'll come to you with the maid, the character of the maid. As Richard says, Somebody who is sort of intimately connected to people's lives, sees things that other people don't see. Um, that's the first thing. But also Molly as a person, there is something very unique about her worldview. So could you tell us a bit about those two things, her sort of position and, and her as a character? Yes. Well, the, the idea of the maid is that in a hotel, they have to be on call all the time and see to every dirty detail. But at the same time, part of their function is to be invisible in plain sight, which of course is um, a lot like a criminal or a detective or, 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 or. Um, and Molly, you know, she is an unusual sort of character um, and she, you know, hates dirt. She's the enemy of dirt. Uh, she wants everything in, in a state of perfection, which of course goes against that, that um, uh, cozy crime world we're talking about where there there must be dirt there is a murder at the beginning and it must be solved um, and so that's part of her world too um, she struggles with social cues and that makes her in some ways not the greatest um, sort of collector of clues so you know I'm sort of playing with the idea of the Sherlock in this case being actually the reader so we see through Molly's eyes but because she doesn't always quite fully grasp the implications of what's happening it's actually the reader who is collecting the clues i mean that's even more the case i suppose with with your book janice um both of your books that of course anybody who's reading crime is is sort of acting as sleuth as they go through and try and solve it although i'm a terribly credulous reader so i am terrible i just believe everything i'm told i'm useless at solving things my wife is a complete solver and often if we're watching a film We'll be 10 minutes in and she'll say, can I write it on a piece of paper? <laughs> and I have, I'm like, we've only just met the people. But anyway, 
Janice, with with you, with the the, the structure of the appeal, with the the documents, if you like, the the, the emails, the transcripts, uh, and then the, the audio transcripts in the Twyford Code. Uh, why did you choose, I suppose, to to present your evidence, if you like, in that way and your narrative in that way? And does it actually alter the way that you write or is it any harder or any easier than writing any other novel? I chose those formats really by accident. And I think because I came to writing novels from script writing, where you communicate almost everything by a dialogue um, on the page, uh, I slipped quite easily into these which turn out to be quite unusual structures for everyone else. Um, I didn't find it difficult to do. And I'm sure it does have its um, limitations. You don't describe place particularly. But um, no, it came quite naturally to me. And I'm very grateful and lucky, really, that it worked. And <laughs> I enjoy writing that way. Does it require... My, my vision of, of crime writers is always that they must have post-it notes sort of all over a wall with pieces of string attaching them in order to plot out something is it that complicated or is it really much simpler if you know what happens not for me I'm not a planner at all not I, I do all my planning afterwards so I write my first part and then once I've got this sort of 80 90,000 word document that's when I start planning and working out what it's about and what goes where and, and who does what when so that everything is revealed in a, in a happy manner throughout the, the text. But no, I set off without um, any sort of map or any sort of planning. If I have that, one post-it note, that's it. That's, that's incredible to me that you, you, you impose the order after you've got the words down on the page. I'm a reverse engineer. Okay. Does that ever come back to bite you? Do you ever find yourself painted into a corner? Um, very, very occasionally I have on the odd occasion had to delete sections or I've been going in a direction and I've had to cut, you know, sometimes many thousands of words um, because I, it felt wrong and it just, it, something you know, you know when it's wrong, something feels wrong about it. So I have had to do that. Um, otherwise, um, no touch wood, luckily, um, if I, I think Jed Mercurio once said that if you chip the golf ball um, behind a tree, you've got to chip it out again. So if I find myself in a in a hole, I have to dig my way out of it through the text. Um, so far, it's worked, but um, <laughs> I'm not complacent. It... <laughs> uh, and Richard, um, for you, you're you're starting a, a series of books. So obviously, you're you're having to set the scene with Murder Before Even Song and create the village of Champton. Um, tell us a little bit about you've given a sort of hint about why a man of the cloth is a, is an excellent person to have as an amateur sleuth. But how did you then set about populating your village and deciding oh, who lives there? He might of course be a useless sleuth actually, but uh, the, but you, you, have, you, you have no excuses. I think it's because as a parish priest, you have first privileged access, so you can kind of go anywhere. Nobody asks what you're doing. Secondly, people. I think it must just be so deeply written into our cultural memory somehow that even now when nobody goes to church or can sing any hymn apart from all things bright and beautiful, they still talk to you and tell you stuff. So that's fascinating to me. Um, but I think it's that it's that overview. And also you get used to, you know, people behave mysteriously. But if you step back and if you look at the patterns of their interactions, sometimes a story begins to emerge and that's happened that happens constantly in pastoral ministry and uh first lesson for me was to kind of shut up and try to be 
less active and to witness and pay attention carefully to what's going on around me. Also, the time, mine, mine is set in 1988, which um, partly because the 80s is the greatest decade in culture, obviously, but um, but really it was such an interesting time. And I, I, you, you know, it's it's 40 years after the end of the Second World War, and I'm because in my ministry I've spent a lot of it on, at the deathbeds of people who were the last survivors of the Second World War, and just listening to their stories about what happened to them, how they brought that home. Maybe they tried to leave it behind. Maybe it followed them. All that stuff. I'm sure any writer of uh, murder histories would, would find that crystal now. That's very interesting. We'll come back to the 80s, Richard, and the, the very important part that you've played in that cultural, uh, rich cultural life. Um, Nita, for you, uh, sort of creating Molly's character, you've, you've spoken a bit about why she was so useful, but there's something about that hotel environment as well, isn't there? Which it's not quite a closed, you know, sort of a locked room mystery, but it, the, the sort of closed environment of a hotel is something quite unique. Yes, for sure. And, you know, I'm fascinated by hotels. I find them so interesting and because they are characters in and of themselves. They must present a character. That's part of the appeal. And, you know, we go into them and as a guest, you know, uh, there is this illusion of glamour that is created simply for you. But it comes on the backs of this hierarchy of, of people who are working away to hold up that facade. And I'm fascinated by that, that we can have a public space or a mostly public lobby uh, where everyone can watch each other because it's such a great place to people watch. But behind those closed doors, there is so much that is or can be going on. There's also the upstairs, downstairs sort of um, uh, facet to hotels because there's the outward facing people who work there, the receptionist and the concierge and the doorman. But there's also the folks like Molly and her cohorts who are toiling away unseen, often under-recognized and undervalued, um, all to prop up this illusion for the guest. That's really interesting. Um, I, I wonder, we've spoken a bit about sort of the, the, the process of putting the book together. I wonder what you find the hardest part Um one of the things we've talked about is obviously you have the information and you have to give that information to your reader. And I'm always amazed at how authors know how to give just enough to propel the plot and to give you information, but to not give it away. That seems to me incredibly well judged. Have you ever come a cropper and do you have to use other people to help you tell you whether you've got it right or not? Um, Janice, I'll come to you first. I always find the um, my editor and the proofreaders and all the people who get to read the book before the reader does, they're absolutely essential because they do pick up on things that I don't. And sometimes they're plot holes, sometimes they're inconsistencies um, with characters, sometimes they're things that wouldn't happen in real life. And I just love um, hearing that because it means that one fewer mistake has reached the reader. So that's always a, a relief. Um, but, yeah, I... Um, I tend to um, look at the whole thing. I I don't until that novel is a whole first draft. It's almost it doesn't exist for me. So once you get to that stage, that for me is a really big moment to have the whole thing in front. And weirdly enough, I can keep that text in front of me far easier than I could ever keep a, a ten-page um, plot outline. So for for a strange reason. So that's that's how I I end up doing it. 
Um, but yeah, I um, I love people reading it to to work out where I've gone wrong. It's great. Bring it on. <laughs> Richard, obviously, you you've written before, but this is your your first sort of crime novel. So, how, how did you? approach that and, and did you sort of seek plenty of sort of advice and support along the way well I, I sort of thought I wrote out a careful plan and then I had supper with Ian Rankin in Cromarty and I said oh Ian I bet you've got a room covered in post-it notes he said no I don't I just sit down and write it the Janice method actually um, so that was encouraging I found it was like sometimes it felt like I was a passenger on a plane and somebody said the captain has passed out you're going to have to land it because there's a lot going on it's big and it's full of energy well I hope it's full of energy and trying to kind of keep everything on track was really really difficult actually so I kind of blundered my way through a first draft and then it went to in front of a number of people actually and that was immensely helpful quite a lot changed between the first version and the final version Although now I hate this bit. I'm in that moment where it's done and it's out there and it's improved and it's gone to people. And I, and you have this terrifying feeling that your child will prove to be unpopular at school or something or bullied or horrible. So it's a, it's a gruesome moment. And it's my first go at, at fiction. And, you know, it's not the same as nonfiction. This is my profound insight. <laughs> <laughs> profound insight number one yeah. we'll have more later hopefully um nita obviously you have spent many years working as an editor with other authors uh but i'm presuming that doesn't mean that it's just easy peasy for you to just sit down and crack a novel out oh it's the easiest thing in the world in fact yeah i just finished another one yesterday <laughs> <laughs> just doing one now <laughs> just oh oh just done yep um, yeah, it's writing is really, really hard uh, now. And I have so much respect for those like the the genesis of the world, the Janus method, the Ian Rankin method, who do it a different way than me. I mean, I just I'm listening and I'm just like shocked by the ability to ha and the vulnerability to just go for it. For me, I consider myself a bit of a tentpole writer. And what I mean by that is I need to know a few important things. Like there are the twists, the whodunit aspects, and a few notions of how characters change throughout um, the world I'm creating. I need to know that before I can give myself the liberty of, of you know, going at that first scene. But what's really great about that for me is, is, you know, that feeling of knowing where I'm going and having no idea how I'm going to get there. Um, and that, you know, uh, contrast of direction and abject fear that I am lost mm. is the perfect place for me to begin writing. It's greatly um, encouraging to hear, I have to say. <laughs> I try my best. I try my best. You land the plane and I get lost while I'm found. It's great. <laughs> when you say land the plane. Hmm. <laughs> oh dear. Um Janice, you you've delivered, you know, these two novels um which have got a really clever structure to them. Um do, do you think that that's going to mean that you're going to continue to write your novels with that sort of idea or are you ever tempted to just write a sort of straight narrative i've got loads of ideas sort of queuing up and you know washing over my head some of them have unusual structures and some of them are a bit more um conventional 
I think there's a part of me that's running scared from the third person narrative because <laughs> um, I do like these um, the, the kind of found footage novels. I mean, my third novel that I'm kind of winding up at the moment is is a found footage novel. Um, but I wouldn't uh, rule out at all doing a, a more conventional narrative. I think that would be a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> and and Nita, uh, obviously, the the maid is a, is a standalone novel, and you know you uh, do most your day job, if you like, is is working with other writers. Has has writing this one tempted you to write more, or are you happy to get back behind the desk again? Oh well, I'm doing both. I do both simultaneously because I am obviously a masochist. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> but the the truth is that one for me fuels the other. Uh, I love, I've only ever been good at one thing, really. It's telling stories and and helping other people tell stories. And for me, those are two halves of a singular whole. Um, so one fuels the other. Working with other authors who create the worlds and helping them, you know, see them to fruition or conclusion or completion is hugely gratifying and fills me with energy to then try to do so myself. And uh, we mentioned earlier that the, uh, the the film rights had been optioned, and the name of Florence Pugh has been mentioned in conjunction with with Molly the Maid. Um, I can see a big smile, so I'm presuming that's all still good to go. It um, is very, very much good to go. Yeah. How, how do you feel, <laughs> I suppose, about the idea of adaptation, about handing over a piece of work and and it being sort of you know changed by somebody else? Well, at the beginning, I must admit, I was you know quite terrified. You know what 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 were they going to do with it, and was I still going to be proud of of the outcome the way I am of the book? Um, for the most part, you know, we all have our misgivings, right? But um, but, but I'm happy to report that as we move through the process, you know, I'm no longer afraid of that. I'm just so unbelievably excited about um, the various things that are happening because. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not so much about the entire fidelity to the world that I created. It's way better than that. It's about having other creators come on board and, you know, do the translation for screen in a way that has such respect and fidelity for that world and takes it to a new and exciting place. And that for me is the best. Richard, um, I'm going to pick up uh, for the for those who are listening to this podcast. This this won't quite work, but for those who are watching, they'll be able to see what I'm holding up now. This is this is a proof of your book, which your publisher sent recently, yeah. which is wrapped in dashed uh, <laughs> wrapping paper. Um, uh, that hopefully explains to those who've got audio only what I'm holding. But could you explain why uh, dashes are an important part of of your novel? Well, Dachshunds are an important part of my life, actually. And vicars and dogs tend to go together, um, partly because it's a job which lends itself to... It's a dog-friendly kind of job. Partly also because dogs are very useful in pastoral ministry, either in keeping people at bay or inviting them in. You need to have the judgment of Solomon sometimes over what mood your dog is in when you introduce it to a community. But also, there's something about... It's Dachshunds, too. They're curiosity their nosiness the way they sniff out a scent the way they go after something there's something in that which i contrast to the rather mild and sometimes directionless manner of my vicar detective which i quite just the contrast in that i i quite like um and i'm just interested in there's also i just wish why does the queen like corgis and dorgies which are dachshund corgi crosses so much and i think it's that thing about 
loyalty without deference. If you're a vicar, you are often subjected to weirdly deferential behaviour, which may be convenient in the short term, but in the long term is no good to you at all. And um, dogs, again, are a sort of marginalia, perhaps, to that. Um, I, I believe that the Waterstones edition has got maybe dashens on the sprayed edge. And in fact, all of you have had some quite impressive sprayed edges, uh, so much so that, in fact, Niti, I lent a copy of your book to, to a friend of mine and they have blatantly stolen it. <laughs> oh, you're not, not you're back. not getting that back. Oh, it's too, just it's too pretty. Yes, they've taken it away. <laughs> um, and Janice... Uh, the, 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 the appeal got a special edition and indeed the time code has a lovely coloured sprayed edge as well. I, I just wonder whether for you as authors, whether things like that make any difference to you or whether it's just whether it's a lovely thing to sort of see a book given the special treatment. Um, we'll begin with you, Richard, obviously as first time author. I suppose actually you won't have seen the wow. final copy yet. I thought all edges were sprayed, you see. It's a whole <laughs> new thing for me. Well, it's very encouraging when you see your publishers investing in promoting your thing that's very good and and i'm and i'm very pleased and and grateful for it um it's funny it really reminds me of actually his pop music of the 1980s and the reissue of 12 inches in various different formats as a way of mm. kind of um intensifying the appeal of what you've produced and also making people kind of return for different versions of it so i'm very pleased about that and also it's hard to lose with the dachshund well, exactly. Yeah. You've got at least half half of the population of the country on side immediately. Yeah. Um, Nita, how about you? Oh, well, I'm such a book nerd. So, of course, I, I love every possible bling and effect that can be thrown onto a book, provided it, you know, it enhances the world of the book itself. And books are so wonderful. I mean, I'm such a traditionalist, too. You know, it's an old technology that still works. And, uh, you know, having a book that is an object that you, you, you know, you feel close to your heart, that you can press to your chest because you love it so much. There is something important about that, that tactile sensory feeling of a book. So bring on the sprayed edges and the, you know, amazing little bookmarks and the foil. Bring it all on. I love every bit of it. <laughs> and how about you, Janice? I, I love special editions and seeing my book in a special edition because I think it reflects how I feel about it. I mean, to me, the books are just so special in my life. And to see that those enhancements come in, being visual and seeing that it, it's special to other people as well, mm. uh, it's just wonderful. And I'm quite a collector myself. I don't particularly collect book things, but if there is something in different editions that I collect, I would like to get all of them. Yeah. And I like that element of, of my books, that they come in different packages yeah i think we might give a free dachshund with every copy maybe i'm not sure <laughs> I'm how, the, in. Which, how the economics of that would work here's, here's <laughs> see i was hoping i was hoping one might make an appearance there we go oh, so oh my goodness for, for those who are audio only <laughs> again this may not make much sense but dachshund has made an appearance yeah. <laughs> um uh, you'll be amazed to hear that i i think we may have reached the stage now um where it's not quite that all uh, edges are sprayed, but some people are beginning to display books with the sprayed edge out oh. as opposed to in because they are so pretty. Um, so I think the, the age of the sprayed edge will, will continue. For, Isn't that interesting about how 
I used to pick up a book and look to see if it was sewn rather than glued in that slightly kind of mm. sort of way. But now it's the sprayed edge. I'm looking for that. Yeah. I used to like finding, you'd, occasionally you'd find a book in a secondhand bookshop where the pages hadn't been cut oh, yeah. properly. Yeah. Yeah. Then you yeah. could get, have the fun of getting a little Stanley knife out and trying not to lop a finger off whilst you liberated the pages. <laughs> and then the terror of thinking maybe you're destroying the value of a rare yeah. edition or something. <laughs> so um to to bring things to a conclusion i think we've done a first of all a sterling job of talking about all of your books without giving away any spoilers uh which i'm very very happy about um we've spoken a little bit about why we think uh there is the appeal for for cozy crime particularly at the moment um and the enduring appeal for it as well and something about that sort of resolution that that happens but i understand people liking that thing of order being restored but why do you think people like the disruption why do people like murder? And Janice, you mentioned you, you like true crime as well as sort of fictional yeah. crime, which I always find slightly grisly. But so, what, where do you think this fascination for everybody comes from? Oh, that there's um, the dark side of humanity is absolutely fascinating. And I think we should be fascinated by it because we need to understand it. We want to understand it in order to prevent it or to, you know, to stop it happening. So there's this almost perennial and. Um, no need to consume in the hope to find an explanation. That's that's how I feel. Anyway, I mean, I, you know, others, the other writers here may have another interpretation, but yeah, I mean, I I will read anything about serial killers and about you know the most terrifying things that you know there is. Um, I just can't get enough. Lisa, you mentioned uh, Lisa Jewell and, and Ruth Ware, a couple of authors that you, that you work with. You know, uh, you will have seen many authors who deal with this kind of uh, territory. Why do you think it has this appeal for people? Well, I think we use the realm of fiction to approach the things that most terrify us with uh, an illusion of safety. So this is how we can un try to understand one of the things that is most frightening, psychopathy, sociopathy, uh, murderous tendencies, and the list goes on. All of these facets of human behavior that are, you know, so deeply troubling and frightening to us, we can approach to the world of fiction with that element of safety. And, and Richard, how about you? I'm, uh, I'm a great admirer of René Girard and his scapegoat theory, which is that we are naturally competitive creatures who contend for fixed resources with endless competition. And that creates tensions and those tensions need to be earthed. And so we isolate someone or an event and a sacrificial victim happens. And then they're sent off into the wilderness as a way of uh, expelling that tension so the community can reset and live again. And I think that mechanism or something like that mechanism you see happening in a lot of, of crime fiction. I think it's a powerful, powerful thing. Mm. Well, thank you so much, all of you, for, for explaining a little bit more about crime to me as, as a bit of a crime novice, but I've enjoyed reading all of your books. Um, and we, we know that readers have enjoyed that too. And Richard, they will be getting a taste of Champton, your village, uh, in uh, June this year. Um, the Appeal and The Twyford Code are, are both out now, as is The Made by Nita Prose. Um, thank you so much, all of you, for, for being a part of the podcast. Thank you, Will. Thank you so much. See you guys on the circuit, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You better bring your dogs. They're all coming. <laughs>